0: This is Commerce Shannigans, episode 466, a conversation with Doug Mensch. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 466, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is our Conversation with Doug Mensch episode. This was a, a lot of fun to do. It's almost two hours long. Um, I got to sit down with uh, Doug to talk about his career in comics. Uh, it's interesting. We only, like, touched Doug uh, like just Barely scratched the surface of his Batman work. Um, There was a lot of questions that I got from the Marvel Masterworks forum, so thanks again to everyone who submitted questions. Uh, Just as a quick shout out to some of the people who did, who I name checked some of them, but I don't know if I had a chance to name check everyone for their actual questions. But uh, DJ Way, who had a lot of uh, great questions on the Paul Galesi interview, uh, submitted a lot for this one. Was very helpful and really, uh, you could tell that he's a, a big Mensch fan. Um, so, he definitely was a huge contributor in terms of the questions. So, a very special shout out to uh, to DJ Way um, because his just his first of all, he helped me get in touch with Doug, so that's a, a big thing as well. So, I wouldn't have been able to do this interview if not for him. And then he supplied an amazing amount of questions uh, that were really helpful and really got some great stories out of Doug. So, thank you. Uh, we had great questions from Goat Goblet, uh, Arnold Kosser, uh, Green Muir Cat. Um, I think the, I missed one from Todd Tamman and Clark. So maybe at our next interview, I'll make sure to ask him about Aztec Ace. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Dilo Tempio, we added had some of your questions in there. Uh, Stretcho, Banky, LCPM29, Badger1701. Um, thanks again for some of the f- amazing questions uh, that you submitted, as well as Curtis Finlay, uh, fellow podcaster from the Epic Marvel Podcast um, great questions all around so thank you so much for submitting them uh, as I said this is a bit of a long one um, I'm actually, the way I've cut this is that I started recording basically from the minute um, that the phone was ringing basically and uh, I kind of borrowing this from a different podcast I listened to I decided you know what I'm going to leave that in and actually kind of have the, as we start talking and as we start to kind of get going so you have the raw real thing this is really what it was like when I got to uh, pick up the phone and call Doug one day and it was a lot of fun, I think you're really going to enjoy it uh, sound off at the Marvel Masterworks for for him afterwards and um, you know Uh, for discussion about this uh, interview with other fans of Doug, but uh, this was a really amazing experience, and I hope to have him back on the show at some point in the future. Um, Surprisingly, the show is almost booked up completely in terms of uh, episodes and uh, what we're going to be doing up until episode 500, which will be in August, so uh, maybe sometime in the fall we'll try and get Doug back on the show, but this was an amazing experience, and I hope you'll really enjoy uh, this fantastic interview. Uh, If I don't say so myself, but really, Doug just has amazing stories, and he has great can And uh, I think that this is a really good listen So without further ado, I know you're tired of me yapping You can always email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes Subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Stitcher So without further ado, let's jump right into the episode as I chat with Doug Mensch Hello Hi, may I speak with Mr. Mensch please? That's me Hi, it's uh, Adam Chapman Kong from the Comic Shenanigans podcast How are you doing today? Thank you so much for uh, taking some time today Sure um, How long do I have you for, just so I have an idea? Oh, about an hour Okay, absolutely uh, I will say uh, before we get started that you were one of the most requested um, people that I get on the podcast uh, to interview from my listeners Really? Really? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and then I put out a call for, you know, any, any, if anyone had any specific questions And uh, I had a ton of questions come in <laughs>
1: I don't know what it is, but I seem to be much more popular in the U.K. and Canada than I am in Amer- in the United States. Really? I wonder why I that must, is. You guys must have better schools is all I can say.
0: <laughs> Maybe. It's possible. Actually, it's funny you mentioned schools. I was uh, having a conversation with a fellow podcaster who was uh, going to go back to teaching in the U.S., and I was saying to him, because like, he was kind of like, "Well, it doesn't pay very well, it's not that great." And I'm like, "Man, teaching is a very different job in Canada. in Canada. teachers are paid well, have an excellent pension um it's It's one of those jobs that everyone's kind of like wishes they could have, and it seems to have a completely different connotation in the u s
1: well, yeah I'm, I'm going to blame the Republicans. what What can I tell you? <laughs> These right wing fuckers. Sorry, is that on the podcast?
0: That's that's a no. We're explicit. You can swear if you need to.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, Donald Trump is elevating my blood pressure. I, I I don't know. I hate to be that weak, but he is.
0: That's okay. <laughs> I mean, as a, as an observer to the north, we're worried as well.
1: Yeah, I can imagine.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and our uh, our prime minister seemed to get along a lot better with Obama.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jeez. I always call the Dick Cheney, George W. administration, eight years of relentless hell and horror. And it was followed by eight years of pretty much calm for me. I was able to stop watching the news all the time and read and watch movies and relax again and breathe. And then it's followed by this guy who's, you know, way worse than Cheney. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus.
0: <laughs> it's interesting the perspective it gives you on, on, on past presidents. that Oh, they weren't so bad. Well, I'm <laughs> not going to say Cheney and W. weren't so bad. They were.
1: We're still living with what they did. They destabilized the whole Middle East. and You know, Trump is saying uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are the founders of ISIS. No, that was Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. <laughs> Give me a break here.
0: My God. Anyway, you wanted to talk about comic books. I did, absolutely, and that's overwhelmingly what the uh, the listeners wanted to chat with you about as well. Okay. Well, let's, let's go way back. I'll do a little bit of an intro. How did you first start reading comics, or what was your first interaction with comics?
1: Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I imagine my mother being the better educated Scotty that she was, she was a war bride. My father was stationed in Scotland during World War II and sort of robbed the cradle over there. We Got my mother married at 16, right? Wow. But I think she must have read to me a lot. And I don't know if she used comic books or not, but uh, for some reason I wanted to read earlier than the typical kid, you know, and the thing I latched on to was comic books and this was so early that I can't really remember the first time you know what I mean it, it, I can't remember much before the age of maybe four or three, I don't know uh, but I do know back then we were living, this was in Chicago and there was a corner store and that's where you got comics back then. And I remember being sort of spellbound by the the rack of comics. And I particularly remember Carl Barks's uh, Uncle Scrooge, and Donald Duck, and things like uh, I guess maybe Mighty Mouse or Atomic Mouse, something like that. And. Uh, Then, a little later, I also have a vague memory, I'm not sure if this is a real memory or not, of EC's, the horror comics. Um, And I may have read some of those when I was very young, or maybe not, maybe I'm just thinking I did. But I know I was really big on uh, Carl Bux's Uncle Scrooge. And Donald Duck, you know, whatever he did. Absolutely. Not that that I knew it was Karl Barks at the time. Here's a fun fact. If you look at my version of uh, Doc Savage, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was, Marvel did a a black and white magazine of Doc Savage. Mm -hmm. And Doc Savage, uh, as created and written by Lester Dent and whoever, he had these... uh, I believe it was five helpers, and each one was specialized in something. Um, my Doc Savage was modeled on Uncle Scrooge adventure stories, and Uncle Scrooge was Doc Savage, and the uh, you know Huey, Dewey, and Louie and Donald they were like the Doc Savages' helpers. Oh wow. That's also the story behind uh, when I co-created Bane for the Batman uh, Nightfall stuff. Um, I I came in with the original idea, well, this guy is the best at everything, physical and mental, just like Doc Savage, and maybe he has uh, helpers who are specialized in things like Doc Savage had, you know, (laughs) and that's what Bane was.
0: Wow, I never thought of it that way. So really, it all comes from Uncle Scrooge. All comes from Carl Barks. Wow, what? Uh, how did you first start kind of breaking into the industry then? Like, how did how did you make that leap, that jump?
1: Um. Well, I was totally addicted to comics for quite a while, and then I reached the ripe age of twelve or so, whatever it was and decided I was too old for comics, and went cold turkey. And about two, three months later, I went into another kind of corner store, except it was in the middle of the block, to get my Coke and french fries with, uh, you know, half a gallon of ketchup. (laughs) Boy, that was great. Those were the days. And they had a rack of comics in there, which I hadn't been paying attention to. But this one day, something caught my eye, and it was a logo that I'd never seen before. You know, in the racks is just the logo that sticks up, mm-hmm. and the logo seemed really weird to me because the the words of the logo seemed to suggest, uh, you know, a superhero type thing but the style of the, the font, if you will, seemed to be a humor a font, mm-hmm. and it was Fantastic Four. I was like, well, Fantastic Four, that sounds like superhero thing, but look at the shape of the letters. It's like a goofy humor thing. What the hell is this? So I pulled it out. It was Fantastic Four number one, and read it while I had my ketchup and french fries, and, bought it and was re-addicted all over again and now on a whole new level. I got right in on the Marvel Comics thing with Fantastic Four number one at the very start. And that led to me writing letters to the you know, the letters pages, and that led to Don Glute, who also lived in Chicago who later became a comics writer, and he's also the author of the Dinosaur Dictionary sold in museum bookstores all across the land, you know. <laughs> and he actually makes movies now, um, these ultra-low-budget uh, horror movies with with all kinds of naked girls in them. And he, became, he called up because he saw one of my letters in Spider-Man, and he looked me up in the Chicago phone book, and got the phone number and called me up and said, hey, I'm renting all 15 chapters of the Captain Marvel serial, and I'm gonna show it in my basement next Saturday. And if you chip in 50 cents uh, to pay for the rental, uh, my mother will make popcorn and there's a bunch of other comic book readers or fans, I guess he called them fans and, you know, you don't live too far away. And I said, oh yeah, great. So that was my first introduction to other people who were obsessed with comics, as opposed to just the other kids on the block who would sit on my porch and read them and love them, but they weren't, you know, obsessed with them the way I was and Don Glute and this other group of uh, Chicago fans. So, uh, came the day we used to sit around. We would write things just for our own amusement, and then pass them back and forth. We would read each other's things that we wrote. And Don Glut was putting out a fanzine called Shazam. And one day he told—this is years later—he told me, uh, "Oh, I just sold a, a story to uh, Creepy to Warren Publishing. Creepy." And I really, you know, I couldn't believe it. And when I hung up the phone, I thought, wow, if he did it, I can do it because my stuff is way better than his, you know. (laughs) I was very cocky. So I sat down, this was like 1968 or nine, something like that. I sat down, I wrote one story a day for five days in a row. And I had five stories, and I put them all in an envelope, unsolicited, just sent them blind submission to Warren Publishing. You know, I just did, to the editor, Warren Publishing, and sent them off. And then promptly forgot about them because by this time I was obsessed with something even more than comic books, which was girls. You know, I was. I, I guess you could call me a hippie, although I hate that word. I was. and uh, no TV you know (laughs) still reading comics but not quite as much uh, emphasis on that anymore and I forgot all about these five stories and then one day I went to the mailbox and there was an envelope from Warren Publishing and I opened it up and there was no letter there was no note it was just a check and it was for $125 and I thought wow I sold one of those stories for $125. Gotta remember in 1969, this is a fortune, especially Mm -hmm. for someone who was living so cheaply as I was. Uh, The rent back then was like, you know, 60 bucks a month or something. Here's, yeah, I sold this story and I can live for two months on this money. (laughs) And uh, then I opened the check up and saw the bottom and it listed all five stories it was $25 each and so that put a little bit of a damper on it but I thought well but the good news is they bought all five of them you know and that's how it started
0: wow so what how did you actually I'll, I'll turn it over to a listener question that kind of dovetails into where I was going to go with this Uh, The listener who goes by the way of DJ Way On uh, the forums that I frequent Said uh, you were one of a group of young writers At Marvel who spearheaded the company's Second phase after Stan Hung hung up the writing reins You, Steve Englehart, McGregor, Gerber Wolfman and Len Wein Was there a kind of camaraderie amongst the bunch of you? Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah There was a great camaraderie Uh, It was Marv Wolfman who He was editor at Warren Briefly uh, and he he was one of he and I think one or two other Warren editors actually called me on the telephone long distance from New York, you know, just to say, uh, "Wow, I really like this story I just want to introduce myself." So we became friendly on the phone. This was after a long time of me just sending things in and checks coming back with no contact. <laughs> and finally the first editor, the editor who bought my those five stories in the beginning and many more after was Archie Goodwin uh the world's nicest guy by the way and my favorite editor of all but anyway eventually it became Marv Wolfman we became friendly then one day uh the phone rang, and it was Marv Wolfman calling from New York, and I said, oh, Marv, what, I, I heard you quit Warren. What do you? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Roy Thomas's office at Marvel right now, and we're going to be putting out a line of black and white books, and we need a lot more writing, and Roy asked me to recommend some, I recommended you, and here's Roy. And so he put Roy Thomas on the phone, Roy asked me if I wanted to come to New York, and and work for Marvel. And I I really didn't want to because I just met this new girl and things were going great. And I was making a, what for me was a ton of money just writing, including for uh, the Chicago Sun-Times Sunday Supplement, uh, Midwest Magazine, I was writing these feature articles. And one of them just got nominated for a Chicago Newspaper Guild Award, right? Things were going great. I was selling everything I wrote to either Warren or Skywald or DC, but with House of Mystery and House of Secrets. So I said, well, how about if I come to New York and try you out for two weeks? <laughs> See, this is how arrogant I was without, without trying to be arrogant. I wasn't meaning to be. Uh, I was I was genuinely not sure if I wanted, you know, this is a great honor, but I'm not sure I want to move to New York, you know? And luckily the girl I had just met said, um, well, you go try it out. And if you like it, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll go with you. And if it works out, fine. And if not, I'll just come back to Chicago and no hard feelings. And I thought, wow, you'd be willing to do that. Great, okay. So anyway, after the two weeks, uh, I thought, yeah, I could do this. Uh, new York was a whole new world. And and like you say, there was this camaraderie in the bullpen like you wouldn't believe. People don't believe it anymore because it, it got so sour after a while. But back then it was great. And it wasn't just me and, you know, Don McGregor became my best buddy at Marvel in the beginning. And Steve Gerber eventually became one of my best buddies uh uh Engelhart not so much because he moved to California but in the beginning yeah he was there for I don't know a few months while I was uh, just starting out and who else did you mention well Marv Wolfman I already talked about and Len Wein another sweet guy I just uh spent some time with him I guess it was oh man two years ago. Anyway, it seems like just the other day. Um, the the camaraderie extended beyond that to the old timers. You got to remember, these guys were our idols. So for me to have a big argument with John Buscema, over, you know, who was better, Rocky Marciano or Muhammad Ali. And I was right on that one. Uh, He thought Rocky Marciano. And I kept saying, yeah, it's just because you're Italian. You just, you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, Marciano was undefeated. I said, yeah, he retired undefeated because he knew he was going to get defeated pretty soon. (laughs) But anyway, uh, it it, it was such a great thing. Another one of my best friends was um, John Verporten. This, this older guy who was in charge of trafficking and deadlines and struck the fear of God in the hearts of all other freelancers but I somehow saw right through him and broke him down and, and I guess he thought my girlfriend was sweet and he, he melted a little bit and we ended up going over to his place to have dinner and watch movies. He had a, a real projector and bootleg film prints, you know, the actual reels of film. And he had like 52 of them, and they were all prime, you know, Jaws, The Godfather, uh, French Connection, They've really good movies, Casablanca, um, Citizen Kane, whatever you want. And uh, this camaraderie extended throughout the whole Pen. It was amazing. Even though I was looked at as kind of a freak because my hair was down to my ass, you know, that they quickly realized, oh no, it's just another comic book guy, you know, and, and accepted me. And I was willing to accept them from the get go, of course, because this was Gil Kane and, you know, the great, great people. I, I loved them all. Um,. And then it it got ruined, what can I tell you, at a certain point. But it was really a
0: a tight bullpen in the beginning, my beginning, and before my
1: beginning, of course, when it was Stan and Jack. And I don't know about Steve Ditko, he always seemed like kind of a curmudgeon, but, (laughs) uh, well, he was. But I think uh, in the very beginning he got along with uh, Stan
0: Uh, Question, was, uh, so going along with the idea of, you know, the camaraderie of this bullpen, uh, was there also a lot of competition between you guys, especially amongst the writers?
1: Well, yeah, but it was this good competition. It was like, um, well, Don McGregor was was trying to change the world, you know, and, you know, write the greatest stuff. But he would, he, I remember him coming in and saying, Doug, I just read, uh, Uh, Oh, I forget what it was. Uh, Grandma died last year. It was like a nine-page black and white thing in one of the horror books. And I gotta tell you, that's probably the best story I've read in years. You know, I mean, it was a good competition. He's trying to outdo me, but he's admitting when he likes something. And it was a very healthy... Kind of thing. I remember uh, trying to help Steve Gerber on uh, Man Thing because I thought he was doing su- such good stories on Man Thing. I would say, "Hey, Steve, you should do a Man Thing story about this fat kid who gets picked on in gym class, you know, and and, and he, you know, and all of a sudden he can't take it anymore. And yeah, you know, it's just that's right down your alley. It's perfect for Man Thing." And I remember him saying, ah, nah, 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 nah. and then, you know, three months later, there's the kids' night out, and it was great. It was a great story. I was right. He was the perfect writer to do that thing and and make it really special. And, uh, and I remember McGregor went out of his way to write a, a a letter of comment, you know, which was unheard of at the time for one Marvel writer to have a letter published in another Marvel writer's letters page, right? About, uh, I think it was Cat and Fight Without Pity and Master of Kung Fu. So, yeah, it was, it was a good thing. Um, we were all competitive and all probably a little bit jealous, but all happy to see that we were each, I mean, Starlin is doing this uh, great stuff with... Uh, Oh, what was that called? The golden guy. Oh, oh. come on, you know, cosmic guy. Uh, Warlock? Yes, yes, with Warlock. And uh, Captain Marvel and, you know, various other things. And we all loved it. And Englehart started Master Kung Fu. I loved that. That's why I agreed to take it over. Um I don't know what to tell you. It, uh, it, it was a very healthy, good, fun place. Mm. And we would go out to dinner and, you know, hang out, what, whatever we could do to help each other. It was great.
0: Now, I, So let's move on to some more listener questions because uh, I have tons of questions. So I'll try to get as many in here as I can. Um, sure. Uh, I guess the first question is, what was it like working uh, for Roy when he was editor-in-chief?
1: I thought Roy was great. Um, I'm already on record saying Archie Goodwin was the best editor. But (laughs) Roy was wonderful in the sense that, (laughs) this is gonna sound horrible, but he didn't mess with anything. His attitude was, well, I'll, look around and see if I think a certain writer is right for a certain project. And then I'll let him do it and I won't interfere. And then I'll look and see what he did. And if it's if I was right, if he's good, I just leave him alone. If I was wrong and it's a disaster, well, then I gotta replace him with somebody else. And there wasn't this micromanaging nonsense that developed later, which I hated, and which is pretty much why I'm not really doing much now. Um, Editors looking over my shoulder just drive me nuts. I hate it. And Roy was the exact opposite of that. Uh, Most of the editors i worked with didn't do that. Archie would make a suggestion and they were always a good suggestion, but if you said, "Yeah, Arch, I, I thought of that, but it won't work because yada yada," he'd say, "Oh yeah, I see. Yeah, you would. You're closer to it, so you, yeah. All right, never mind." And if he if it was a good suggestion that could work, you would jump on it and do it. Say, "Yeah, great idea, Arch." Um, Roy didn't even do that, really, except at the very beginning. He would explain what what the project is, and this is how it should be done, and da da, da da and then set you totally free, and probably not even bother to read it after a certain point, because he was so busy. He was, you know, I mean, he was writing a lot of stuff, and he was editor-in-chief. So it, it was pretty much impossible for him to micromanage. Hmm
0: another question now this one comes from um, a fellow podcaster whose name is Curtis he just wanted to know uh, what was it like working on Iron Fist and Marvel Premiere 17 to 19 and working with Larry Hama and how did you kind of get the gig to further develop Iron Fist after he was created by Len Wein
1: well my impression was Iron Fist was created by Roy and Gil Kane
0: oh my apologies then I might be wrong there
1: <laughs> yeah um This is odd, I just got a check from Marvel because they say the Iron Fist Netflix series is heavily based on the issues I did with Larry Hama. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm gonna go cash the check. (laughs) Um, uh, It's wonderful. Another reason I'm not doing much anymore is, uh, since Hollywood went comic book crazy, this, this money just falls out of the sky on your head, you know. And the money from Bane alone is unbelievable. But uh, Larry Hama became a very good friend, although we, we butted heads on Iron Fist in a friendly way uh, and later butted heads even more on uh, Fu Manchu, Larry's Japanese. And uh, even though Fu Manchu is Chinese, he was very uh, sensitive to uh, Asian stereotypes. And I remember him coming over to have dinner. And while my wife is cooking the dinner, we had this really intense thing over Fu Manchu. And I said, Larry, I, I agree with you. It's a totally racist character. It wasn't my choice to put him in the series. And I'm much more interested in Shang-Chi, who's a good Asian stereotype, you know? And I mean, Fu Manchu's his father, but he's a bad guy. And yes, back when he was created, he was a racist, terrible stereotype but just look at how I'm doing it. It's that That's not there anymore, you know? And he would go, it doesn't matter. It isn't, you know, the yellow peril. I said, you'll never see the yellow peril in anything I do. Don't worry. Yeah, but it's already been done. Yeah, I know, I know. But somehow we remain pretty good friends through all that. <laughs> um, I forget what the question was. How, how well,
0: did, so I guess, what oh, was it like working oh, on Iron how did I Fist? I develop
1: it from after Roy and Gil... I really, one of the reasons I couldn't tell you whether this money that just came is deserved or not, first of all, I'll, I'll probably never see the Netflix series. Second of all, I have no idea what I wrote on Iron Fist. Uh, I just can't remember that one. <laughs> um, well, I can't. I, I remember when they when Roy asked me to take over uh, Master of Kung Fu, I said, well, He just asked me to take over Iron Fist, that's two martial arts things and that's one too many. The only way I can produce as much output as I'm doing is if there's variety. I have to be able to go from one type of thing to another to another or there's no way I could write this many pages per week, you know, if it was all the same. And he said, well, okay. And uh, and which one would you like? And I said, well, no offense to you, Roy. I know you created Iron Fist, but I'd rather do Shang Chi. And he said, why's that? And I said, because Shang Chi is actually Chinese, you know. <laughs> and Iron Fist is this—you know—the white guy has to come in and show all the Asians that he's better at their at their shtick than they are, you know. And that that sort of bugs me. I don't like that. And I just saw, uh, uh, I didn't read the review, but I, I was just looking at the news on, uh, I don't know what it was, Salon.com or something. And there was a headline uh, knocking the new Iron Fist thing as being another example of the, quote, white savior syndrome. And I thought, damn, I, you know, 50 years ago, that's why I picked Master Kung Fu over Iron Fist, that exact same thing.
0: Well, it's interesting with those original Marvel premiere issues, so you're right, it was where Thomas, but he wrote the first issue, the second issue was Len Wein, and then you did three issues, and then it moved on to Tony Isabella, so it was almost like Iron Fist was introduced and immediately a hot potato that no one really wanted to write.
1: No, that's not the case. <laughs> um, Marvel back then was putting out so many titles, or so many pages per month, because of the black and whites... The, it, each title may have counted as one, but they had 50 odd pages of material in them. So it was like three or two or three extra titles for each black and white. And there were only so many writers. And uh, deadlines were so bad back then that it was all that anybody could do to just get somebody to write the next issue in time for us not to pay a late fee at the printer. Hmm. And there was this constant scrambling. Can you do it? No. You can. No, 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 no. has to be done by Tuesday. we got to find somebody, somebody. You know, when <laughs> can you do it? All right. Len could do it. And it, it would take, sometimes it would take uh, two, three months before you would find the actual new writer on something, you know, with other people just scrambling to, to keep up with the deadline. So it wasn't really a hot potato. It wasn't that nobody didn't, nobody wanted it. It, it was just that everything was late.
0: Gotcha. Uh, how did you get involved with Deathlock originally?
1: Uh, Rich Buckler came up to me. Um, I think he said, I oh, hear you're the hot new writer. And I said, well, I don't know, I'm just, yeah, I'm new. And he said, well, Roy told me to come to you. And I said, okay. And he said, I have an idea for a new character. And it's a, a cyborg. And I said, oh, well, I don't really like the $6 million man. No, 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 it's not like the $6 million man. It's completely different. Okay, don't call him a cyborg. Call him, uh, you know, some, or no, a bionic man is what he said. And I said, well, I don't like the $6 million. I said, well, forget bionic. We'll call him a cyborg. <laughs> or maybe I said that eventually. Call him a cyborg instead of bionic. And uh, let's go out to lunch and talk about it. Maybe you can write it. And, and I said, well, okay, if it's not like The Six Million Dollar Man. they he said, no, 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 it's more like Frankenstein. And, and I said, oh, well, okay. And so we went out and talked about it and, uh, and uh, collaborated on it. It was his uh, basic idea. He had actually, I think, penciled three pages maybe, of the, the first three pages of the first story and without a plot, having a plot just on his own. So I always want to make sure people say, "Did you co-create that?" Like I say, well, yes, but Rich Buckler had the original idea and he came to me with it, and he already had uh, a character design and he was drawing pages and everything. And then, yeah, we did develop it together from there. So co-creator, but he's the the the, the senior collaborator there um and it you know it worked out great for a while and then i i did rarely become pissed off at someone in the bullpen namely rich buckler for some shenanigans and and i was forced to quit that uh, there was a last straw that i thought was just beyond the pale and i'll leave it at that
0: do you ever regret leaving the book Say that again? Do you ever regret leaving the project, or do you think it was the right move?
1: Oh, i uh, the reason I quit was because I didn't want to quit and gave Rich like 19 second chances, right? All right, I'll get into it. It's, John Verporten would call me, and as my friend now, he's asking me to help him out because Rich is late with the art and we're gonna be late at the printer. Could you come in at nine o'clock in the morning after and pick up the pages that he's gonna drop off, right? Go home, write him right away, and bring them back. And I said, John, you know I work all night. I'm going to sleep at about eight in the morning. Now you want me to come in at nine? I'm not gonna get any sleep at all. Come on, for me. All right, so I go in. Rich didn't show up, no pages. Oh God, this this happened again and again and again and again. And finally, I show up one day, and John Verporten says to me, well, he did actually come in today, but he left. And I go, okay, where's the pages? No, he took the pages with him. What? Yeah, he said he wants to write them himself. I said, oh, that's it, I quit, I quit. And. Then you know, Rich wanted me to come back, and I said, "No, no, no, look how many second chances I gave you this come on, I've wanted to do this with you, but you've made it impossible. I'm sorry, and that was that
0: okay uh let's move on It with... was a
1: real shame because I thought it was a special character
0: absolutely well, let's move on to an, a, another one of uh characters that people definitely really love Uh, when you created Moon Knight did you feel that the character had legs
1: no Uh, he was created as a villain in Werewolf by Night and uh, that to me when I did that that was all he was now sure I mean I didn't think about it but I guess in the back of my mind I'm assuming eventually this guy could come back to fight the werewolf again but that's going to be a year away, you know, or eight months away or whatever. Um, it was a total surprise to me. And, and Moon Knight has a very strange evolution. Uh, people keep saying it's, it's, it was Marvel's answer to Batman. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was, it was completely designed to be a villain for the werewolf. People say, yeah, but he's a nighttime character. Well, yeah, because the werewolf is a nighttime <laughs> character. He only changes under the full moon when it's dark. And then they say, well, yeah, but he didn't have any superpowers. And I go, no, he was a, a mercenary who was hired to kill the werewolf, you know, and. Well, but he has those crescent dart things that are like batarangs, and I go, yeah, they're crescent because they're that's part of the moon, and the moon is what makes the werewolf change. So he became a knight of the moon to take down the, the werewolf. And those things that you say are like batarangs are made out of silver, and silver hurts a werewolf. He's also got. Uh, the cestus. So he had originally silver spikes on each knuckle, right on the on his glove, mm-hmm. so he could punch the werewolf and hurt him with silver. And you know, all of those things were designed around the werewolf, not to imitate Batman. Uh, but anyway, so he's created as a villain for a werewolf. I had, I don't know, maybe fifteen names for him, and the phone rings, and it was Len Wein. And Len was like Roy, he didn't interfere, but he did want to know what was coming up so he could write things for the uh, the bullpen bulletin page or whatever the hell it was. Len's soapbox, I don't know. Uh, so I say, well, what's coming up in Werewolf? I said, well, I just uh, created this new villain. Oh, what's his name? And I said, well, I haven't decided yet, I got 15 names. Okay, read them to me. So I start reading the names, and I I think the third, fourth, fifth one was Moon Knight. And he says, Moon Knight, oh, I like that. And I said, yeah, that's one of my favorites too, but I got a, a whole bunch of, no, I really like Moon Knight. I, I really like Moon Knight. I go, all right, I, that's, that might have been it, you know, when I was done deciding, but now uh, if you like it that much, that's definitely it. So he became Moon Knight and he served this purpose and then I believe it was Marv Wolfman came up to me one day and said, hey, I really like that Moon Knight. And you know, he, he was a villain in Werewolf by night, but anybody trying to stop a werewolf is kind of a hero by definition, right? He was, you know, kind of an anti-hero villain. And I said, yeah, that's, that's why I made him that way. You know, he's a mercenary, he's hired, he's a cold-blooded guy, he doesn't care. And and Marv said, "Well, maybe you could do uh, you know, a a special in Marvel premiere or whatever. Some some book that had a different thing every issue and do a, you know, one moon night special." And I said, "Oh, really? You think so?" And he says, "Yeah." And I said, "Okay, I'll go home and do that." And I went back and I thought, "Well, now the anti-hero thing can still stay but we gotta put more emphasis on the hero and less on the cold-blooded villain. And I, how do I do that? Well, he's a mercenary. How about this, He he he's regretting the fact that he took money to go kill people or fight people, whatever, and he wants to atone. And he deliberately sets out to redeem himself and be more heroic, more good, you know? That's the way to turn him into, you know, his own character in this in this uh, in this one book, rather than being a villain for some other character. So I did that, and I think uh, Marv again liked it and said, "Do another one." I think there was another one. I did another one, and then I think uh, Ralph Macchio came to me. I was already doing the Hulk magazine, not the Hulk monthly color book but the Hulk magazine started out black and white and then it went to full process color and he said "We, we, so the Hulk artist can meet the deadlines we're going to cut down on the pages of the Hulk so we need a uh, backup and how about you do Moon Knight as the backup and I said really and you like them too and he said oh yeah I love Moon Knight and every step of the way that this is happening, I'm surprised. It's like, well, I thought he was just a villain for Werewolf by Night. You know, I didn't think people were going to latch on to him this much. Uh, but they did. And it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, he got, well, he got that uh, black and white magazine. I think it was a two, two issue thing. And uh, then his own monthly book. And I, I was really surprised every step of the way. Hmm.
0: You mentioned, obviously, that you know, his costume was meant to be silver originally. And then, I guess, due to the, the coloring at the time, it ended up just kind of being white and eventually just kind of became white in the comics. What are your thoughts on the fact that it, he ended up just being white and not silver?
1: Oh, I, I knew that from the beginning. Wait, you, you know, when it was a regular color Marvel book back then, there was no such thing as silver. And the moon isn't really silver anyway, it's black and white. So my entire uh, intention from the beginning, and it drove me crazy with the colorist, this is gonna be the world's first superhero that has no color on his costume. Uh, Not superhero, but villain, whatever. He was a villain in the beginning with no color on the costume. And, the colors kept wanting to put blue on it or something. You know, they always wanted to put some, I kept saying, no, 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 it's just black and white. You color everything else around him, but he's black and white like the moon. You know, when it's a full moon, it's all silver. When it's, a, you know, the opposite, it's, it's all black. And most of the time, it's a mix of the two. It's crescent and half and so on, three quarters. And his costume is the colors of the moon. And there was tremendous resistance, but eventually that became one of the, you know, the big attractions of the character, I think. I, I, my vision won out, you know. Uh, it even led to doing some uh, completely black and white covers when he got his monthly book.
0: A question about the monthly book. Um, was the decision to publish Moon Knight without ads, did it come from editorial, or did you and uh, Bill push for that?
1: No, nah, what, what that was, see for the entire history of comics up to that point, they were sold on newsstands and in mom and pop corner stores and you know, like that. And the distribution allowed returns. Any unsold copies at the end of the month or the end of two weeks or whatever. Deal was, would be returned for uh, credit. And the saying in the comic book industry became you have to print 10 to sell 3. There were 70% returns uh, on average. Um, there were exceptions. Master of Kung Fu was one of the exceptions. It sold almost 100%, believe it or not. Wow. It was one of Marvel's. Um, most profitable books because there were almost no returns. They sold almost the whole thing. But anyway, it had a low print run, which is why, you know, they might get, a store might get eight copies of the new Spider-Man and two of Master of Kung Fu. Well, the two sold, right? Um, up until that point, there was tremendous waste. And, you know, it was a, a nickel and dime enterprise. Uh, barely, making a profit at all, except in the heyday during World War II when they were selling a million copies a month of Captain Marvel and Superman and so on. Then along came, I guess it was Phil Sully, uh, with the bright idea of comic book shops tailored for comic book fanatics, you know? And the, the, the structure of that became, well... Uh, we're going to make a, a lot of our money selling back issues so we don't want to return any of them. You know, whatever ones we don't sell, we'll keep for the back issue bins. Uh, this changed later when they couldn't sell many back issues but in the beginning that's how it was. And the company saw this as a fabulous thing. Uh, they were short-sighted but in the beginning it, it seemed like a fabulous thing. If, Whatever you sold to the comic shops was 100% sale. They kept them all. Whatever they ordered, that's what they paid for, and there were no returns. So they Marvel decided to try an experiment, which was to cut out the newsstands and the mom-and-pop stores completely and do two titles as a test that would be sold in comic shops only the comic shops loved this the only place you could get these two titles was in their comic shops you know so they colluded with this right and now the company makes 100% profit each uh, that those two titles would be much more profitable uh, in the sense that there's no returns no waste and the comic shops liked it because customers would have to come there to get it uh, so because of that, they raised the cover price and had no ads because none of the people who were buying ads, when they when they found out, oh, it's only in these what do you call them comic shops? Nobody's ever heard of them, right? And there's going to be you know, smaller number of people looking at the ads. Well, we don't want to put ads in there. So the companies were undeterred. They said, well, we'll just raise the price. And have no ads, and have more material, and therefore the higher cost. And it's like twenty-five cents more than the other books, or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the higher cost is justified by having more pages. So this had nothing to do with me or Bilsonkovich. It was entirely a business operation.
0: Okay. Now, speaking of you and Bill, how much freedom? did you find that you gave Bill in terms of story pacing and time frame, and how did you guys kind of collaborate and work with each other?
1: Well, originally I didn't give him any freedom at all, but when he asked for it, I I was entirely willing to go along with it, and I did. And he would ask... He never wanted to kibitz on the plots, really, but he he had these um, ideas for... Uh, trying to develop his storytelling and his layouts and I remember one time he said could you do an issue where every page is only four panels, four wide panels, you know, stacked from top to bottom and see what that, you know, how that turns out and I said yeah sure I'll do one like that and then he, how about if we, you know do a thing with this many panels per page or whatever. He, he would have these various ideas and I would always try to accommodate them. Now, there was one Moon Knight story that has become probably the best known of all the Moon Knights. And that was a story called Hit It. I don't know if you remember that one, but what that was, was because the Moon Knight book had no ads and it was, I don't know what was it, twenty-eight pages instead of twenty-one or something. I don't know. There there were seven or eight or nine extra pages per month, and because of that, Bill couldn't meet the deadlines. So uh, I guess Denny O'Neill was the editor and called me up and he said, "You got to do a bunch of, uh, you know, six, seven, eight page stories for backup, so that Bill can meet the deadlines." And I said okay. And one of them I did. I think it was an eight-page story, and it was called "Hit It." And Denny, I think, screwed up and sent it by mistake to Bill instead of to a, uh, a different artist to beat. So Bill could meet his deadline on the main story. Bill read this thing, and even though it was only meant for eight pages, he fell in love with it. And he called me up and he said, you know, don't tell Denny, but I got this backup thing and I want to turn it into a full-length one. (laughs) And I said, well, maybe Denny won't notice, I won't say anything, and he said, okay so you don't mind if I just uh, do this eight-page story at 22 pages or whatever it was?" And I said, no, I don't mind, but I hope there's something to write, you know, when you stretch (laughs) it that, don't worry, don't worry, the layouts will be great and you'll have plenty of things to write about. And and I said, okay, so there were a lot of big panels and a lot of uh, stretching of things, But in the end, since I was able to write it after he penciled it, I could adjust what I had planned to write for this much longer length and, you know, make it a deeper kind of thing. And it turned out to be one of the best uh, of all the Moon Knight stories, I think.
0: Hmm. So would you say that his evolving style started to influence the way you approached the book?
1: Yeah, whenever he asked me, yeah.
0: Uh, another question about Moon Knight. Um, over the years, the more and more the defining characteristic of the character has become that he's quite insane. Uh, just wondering how you feel about where that where the character's kind of developed or where it's gone, and is that true to the character as you kind of originally envisioned them?
1: Well, with the proviso, with the caveat that I haven't read any of anybody else's Moon Knight stories, uh, and therefore don't know really what I'm talking about here okay. I, can't, I can say that if they made him insane that is dead wrong um, he was a conflicted character because of his bad mercenary past and his new desire to atone and redeem himself so that kind of made him a split Personality in a way, but the creation of the three alter egos was entirely deliberate. Um, if you read the the early stories, you can see him going through the process. You know, well, okay, uh, I need to fight a werewolf, and I need to have this, this, and this. You know, the silver things, and and all, you know, all this stuff. use this uh, chopper so he needed some place to put the chopper so that would be you know a large compound estate or whatever and he made a lot of money as a mercenary and then he turned it into more money through investments so he decided to create this new person called Stephen Grant, who would be the money maker guy managing the investments and building the money up more and more, and the owner and resident of the estate compound where the Moon Knight Chopper could be hidden, you know, his base. And then he decided, okay, now I need somebody this is after the werewolf now he's becoming a just a crime fighter right now i need somebody who's close to the ground and can gather intelligence on the underworld and who could that be i know how about a cab driver he has to drive all over the city and talk to all these different people and you know could stop at this diner and get the skinny from from the waitress and Crawley and you know So he created Jake Lockley. And and this is purely a functional thing, not because he's crazy. And then, of course, he was the the real guy, Mark Spector, the ex-mercenary. So you have these three alter egos, and Moon Knight makes four. Moon Knight is very deliberate, you know, just put on a costume. and So in that sense, he's like Batman. Uh, he puts on an outfit to go out well like Batman and every other superhero really or costumed hero he wasn't super so while I wanted uh, this to explore the psychological complexity of playing these four roles and switching from a millionaire to a grumpy cab driver to a mercenary to a costumed uh, crime fighter you know I definitely wanted to explore all that. And that's no doubt where the subsequent writers got the impression that he's insane, but that was never my intention that he become insane, no.
0: Okay. Uh switching gears a little. Uh this is from uh, a listener LCPM29. I wanted to know how did the retro setting of Rampaging Hulk come about? And how did you feel about fans nitpicking the continuity and Bill Mantlow's retconning of those stories?
1: Well, when they asked me to do The Hulk, uh, I said, well, I've been avoiding uh, regular Marvel characters, you know, with a long history of continuity, even though I love reading them. I'm not that interested in writing them. I'd rather do newer characters and you know, horror characters, martial arts character. What you know, the the newer offbeat stuff rather than having to work. They they had me do Man Wolf, which I thought was kind of okay. It's a werewolf type thing. This was before Werewolf by Night, uh, and Man Wolf it turned out was (laughs) excuse me J. Jonah Jameson's son and they told me okay well Manwolf's going to be a low seller so we want to juice the sales and J. Jonah Jameson is this great character from Spider-Man maybe we can get some Spider-Man readers I I if we put J. Jonah Jameson in Manwolf, and I said, oh, give me a break, Spider-Man readers. I'm going to buy this just because J. Jonah Jameson's in it. Come on. And they said, well, I might get a few extra readers. And I said, all right. So they told me, all right, got to have J. Jonah Jameson in every issue, but you can't do anything that will traumatize Uh, J. Jonah Jameson or affect him in any way where it would conflict with the J. Jonah Jameson scenes in Spider-Man. And I said, you gotta be kidding. His son's a fucking werewolf and he can't be upset in any way. (laughs) What... And I have to put them in every issue? What are you, crazy? It was one of the reasons I dropped the book when they offered Werewolf by Night. I used my usual. Well, I'm already doing a werewolf thing. If you want me to do this Werewolf by Night, I gotta drop Manwolf. And And so when they came to me with the Hulk, I had the same thing. No, I don't wanna have to call up Len Wein or whoever's writing the Hulk right now and find out all the things I can't do because it'll interfere with what he's doing in the regular monthly help. And they said, no, 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 don't worry about that. We've thought of a way to get around that. And I said, really? I said, yeah, how would you like doing it uh, set from after the first six issues and before he, he started up again, you know, that gap in the early days. And I said, oh, you mean when I was obsessed with The Hulk and I really loved the hulk yes i 'm your man, you know, so I was thrilled by that solution, but it wasn 't my idea uh, it 's the only way I would have accepted the Hulk. I was not going to get into this nonsense about continuity this is This is why I turned down writing the Star Wars comic, I think three times. Every time they ask me, we, you, you wanna write Star Wars, you know, big plum they're offering me. I said, uh, I don't think so. And they go, oh, you don't wanna do Star Wars. I said, let me ask you this is there going to be a flood of faxes back and forth from uh, Skywalker Studios or whatever, from George Lucas's people, on every little thing I want to do in Star Wars? And I go, well, yeah, there will be a lot of that back and forth. And I said, okay, forget it. And I made the mistake of accepting uh, an offer to write X-Files, so I wrote up these five great ideas for X-Files because the subject matter is great. You know, it's Mike it's Bailiwick. And I think three or four of the five were rejected because they conflicted with Chris Carter. And I said, oh, something he's doing right now because it doesn't conflict with anything he's already done. And they said, no, he not with anything he's doing was right now. But maybe with things he might want to do in the future. And I said, oh my, yeah, I have to worry about what he's doing, not only now, but what he might do in the future. I have to time travel to do this. Forget it. I don't want to do any more X-Files. Anyway, that kind of stuff drives me nuts. And even though I love Spider-Man and Thor and Iron Man and Fantastic Four as much as anybody when I was reading them, I was not one of those guys who was so obsessed that every tiny little minutiae thing uh, became a crusade. I I say, oh, seems to me I remember that, that couldn't work because of something, uh, but eh, who cares? And I would just read on, you know. It didn't bug me the way it did all the other, well, not all the other writers, but so many of the other writers seemed to be That's all they live for is making sure the integrity of something written nine years ago is preserved, you know? Mm -hmm. And whatever, uh, whoever wrote something to repair what the continuity or what, I didn't read that. I don't know what the hell that was about and I don't care. I just did what i thought were fun stories for the hulk in his missing years you know and if that ended up somehow conflicting well what what can i tell you it only conflicted after the fact right mm-hmm. because they weren't taking my gap stories into account when they did stuff away later isn't that the the case
0: yeah so that, well that's not my fault no you're right no that brings up a question though so you're, you're trying to kind of stay away from these characters that have more of a legacy and continuity. So how did yeah. you end up writing Fantastic Four around the same time as doing Moon Knight?
1: Well, Bill wanted to do it, is basically the answer. Bill and the editor, Jim Salakrup asked me as a favor to do it, and I said, well, you know, uh, there's two things here. I love working with Bill on Moon Knight. One of my favorite guys to work with. And I think he's going to be even better in the future. He's getting better with every issue. He's getting away from the Neil Adams school of things and developing his own style more and more. And it's becoming really exciting. And I really want to keep working with him on Moon Knight. But I don't know about Fantastic Four. To me, Fantastic Four is Jack Kirby, not Neil Adams. And if I were to do Fantastic Four, I'd want to do Jack Kirby type stuff. And Saddlecrum said, no, 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 go ahead, do Jack Kirby. It'll just be drawn by Bill. And I said, yeah, but I don't think that's going to work. And he said, come on, come on, do it for me, do it for me. I think you guys are, you know, the best team going right now. And we really want to see what you could do on Fantastic Four. And I I said, well, all right, I'll I'll do it for a year. I don't know how long Bill will do it, but I'm warning you, This, this I see uh, a lot of signs that this is may not work. It cer- certainly may not work the way I want it to, and that's how that came about.
0: Okay. Uh, in and around this, this, this era, um, you were working on both Godzilla and Shogun Warriors. Um, yeah. How did, you, how did you and uh, Herb Trimpey get those assignments, and did he kind of get attached first, and then you jumped on board, or vice versa? Like, how did that kind of come about?
1: You know, I have no idea. Well, no, I guess I do know. I guess when they asked me if I would do Godzilla, they told me right then that Herb would be the artist. And Herb, remember I said you got to uh, go to the bullpen and become friends with these older guys who were your idols? and. And Herb was one of the guys I really loved. His, uh, 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 what was it? Giant Man or something? I, I, I forget what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Submariner or something. He was doing stuff that I really love. And I always thought his storytelling was some of the best storytelling. It was uh, sort of the Jack Kirby style of storytelling. It wasn't fancy and intricate like. Uh, Uh, Will Eisner and Jim Steranko. It wasn't like that. But it was good, solid, uh, doesn't call attention to itself storytelling, the kind of storytelling where you could tell what's going on at a glance just by looking at the panel. You, you You know everything you need to know. And I always said it was like the difference between John Ford movies and Orson Welles movies. Uh, John Ford was uh, Jack Kirby and Orson Welles was Will Eisner, Jim Hmm. Stranko kind of thing. So I was uh, uh, very, very happy to be able to work with Herb. And when I say one of the older guys, Herb was not that much older than me. I, I don't know if it was five, six, seven years He was still a young guy, but he seemed older because he'd been working for Marvel for years and years before I started, right? Uh, At that age, you know, six years can be a lot. Um, So I turned down Godzilla originally, even though I wanted to work with Herb. And then Stan said, uh, well, come up to my office and tell me why. And So I went up and I I talked to Stan. I said, look, the only way I would want to do Godzilla is if it's like the Godzilla movies and uh, not like Marvel comics. And he says, what do you mean? And I said, well, I've observed that little kids are in love with Godzilla, the goofiness of Godzilla. Uh, as well as the destructive mayhem and the awesomeness and so on, you know. And he said, "Ah, yeah, I, I've noticed the same thing." And I said, "So, I, I'm known, and even by you, Stan, because you've told me this. I'm known as a writer of more mature type." comics here at Marvel for, you know, writing stuff that appeals to an older, more sophisticated reader. But if I were to do Godzilla, I would deliberately try to appeal to kids. And I would try and do it in a way that older readers would enjoy it, too. You know, I wouldn't exclude older readers, but I it would be very different from everything else I'm writing. And Stan just said, "I, know, I you know, go to it. And so that was the end of my argument against doing it.
0: <laughs> what, what was it like to kind of I, I guess you've kind of answered this, being able to kind of switch between your more mature writing and then go to something a little bit simpler with just giant robots, yep. or, or giant monsters? Yep. yep, it was
1: Well, you know, I mean I remember they, I was working on staff, as they called it an assistant editor, but all it really was was a proofreader. Uh, and I would sit there all day, you know, more than eight hours a day, proofreading other writers' stuff and doing a lot of the corrections myself right there with an exacto blade and, and a pen and ink. And, you know, if, if the lines went outside the border, I'd scrape them off. And you know, the only time you sent it to the bullpen for corrections was if... uh there were the wrong number of uh, stripes, circular stripes on Captain America's shield, or or if there was some major screw up in the lettering in the word balloon where they left out three words or something and it was gibberish and (laughs) there's no way you could fix it. If it was just a simple misspelling and you had to switch two letters or something, I'd do it myself. So me and Don McGregor were the two proofreaders at this time. And this one day, I got called into Roy's office and I go, uh oh, what do I do now? And Roy says, sit down. And so I sat down and he says, "Um, we need more writing from you. And I said, what? And he said, we need more writing from you. And I said, Roy, you know damn well I'm already I'm already writing significantly more than any other writer at Marvel plus I'm doing over 40 hours a week here in the office and he says yeah I know but we need more writing for you I said look my girlfriend is the most understanding girl on earth but she can only take so much and I'm hardly sleeping for God's sake come on I said, the only way I can do any more writing is if I stay home. And he says, I knew you were going to say that. All right, stay another week and train your replacement, and then you can stay home, and we want you to do a lot more writing. So the only way I could do that enormous amount of work is if I could go from a horror story to goofy shogun warriors to... A Moon Knight story to Planet of the Apes to, uh, you know, Captain Marvel cosmic type thing and, you know, a Doc Savage adventure story and, a, you know, Star-Lord science fiction. And it had to have that variety or there's, there's no way. And the, it was all, I was doing so much Master of Kung Fu as it was because I think at that time it was a monthly book and it was being republished in Britain on a bi weekly basis, and they were getting ahead of us. Uh, they were publishing, you know, twice a month and publishing more than we were producing per month. So I had to actually do more than was needed for the American monthly just to keep the Brits going. And then they had, uh, you know, the the giant-sized master of kung fu, 40-odd page stories every uh, three months, and they had the black and white deadly hands of kung fu every month. This was unbelievable amount of master of kung fu. And the only way to do that much of that was to be able to break it up with all these other things, with the variety. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, this is a question from a listener, uh, Dilo Tempio. He wants to know, with regards to Werewolf by Night, how did you end up adapting The Legend of Hell House, and was there any legal issues afterwards?
1: There should have been. There should have been. I'm going to chalk this one up to me doing so much stuff. Uh, that really was way over the top. I mean, it's, it's completely different. There, are, there aren't two words in a row that are the same, but there is so much similarity in the general plot line that it's the one thing I'm embarrassed by in everything I've done. And the only thing I can say in my defense is I must have been doing it while I was half asleep and only (laughs) semi-conscious. I was not aware until Marv Wolfman came up to me and said, wow, that's awfully close to Legend of uh, Hell House. And I said, what do you mean? And then I thought, wait a minute. Oh, that Richard Madison thing? And he says, yeah. And I said, Oh geez, I read that about two months ago or three months ago. And he says, yeah, well, you read it and you, you duplicated an awful lot of it here. And I said, oh, geez. And then I went back and looked at it and I saw, I really did. I mean, that, no excuse, but no, there were no legal repercussions. and. Ever since then, I've been very, very aware not to ever, ever do uh, anything like that. And, you know, it was, I don't know, maybe it was another year or two after that when my workload, you know, I eased up, so I wasn't writing in that, uh, you know, having haven't had sleep in two days fog where it's just automatic writing and you don't even know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> I did an awful lot of that for quite a while the uh and the, the the listener later it it just uh you know I was able to sleep every night <laughs> or every day, whichever
0: as as a comment from the listener, he said uh, that the end of the adaptation was the single issue of Werewolf by night he ever bought as a kid, and it frightened him so much that he threw it out, so good job oh
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the odd thing when I went back to look at it, he that most I've never read. But when I went back to look at that, because Marv Wolfman pointed out, uh, I was both appalled and kind of impressed, even though Richard Madison had something to do with it. And uh, is pretty damn good, you know? This is a, a, a good, tight, chilling thing, you know? Uh, so what can I say? Uh, Richard Madison deserves some of the credit, but I thought I did a pretty good job. <laughs>
0: What was it like working on Captain Marvel with Pat Broderick?
1: That was fun. Pat's a good guy. Uh, Again, the variety. Uh, I was looking for... I think one of of the books I was doing got canceled or maybe I quit one because it was too similar to something else, whatever. And I needed something. And uh, they asked me, uh, well you know, would you, uh, would you consider this? No, no, too much of the, the continuity thing. I don't want to do that one. How about Captain Marvel? And I thought, well, that's kind of got some of that continuity stuff, but not much. I mean, he didn't have that much of a history, you know? And uh, while I probably never would have picked it out on my own, when it was one of the things that was offered, I thought, well, that, that's certainly variety, you know, a cosmic uh, superhero kind of thing. I'm not doing anything else like that. Of course, eventually I did do Star-Lord as well. But um, at the time, it, it felt like, yeah, this would, this would help my, my variety jonesing, you know. <laughs> and I liked uh, Pat Broderick's art, and they told me he would be doing it, so I thought, yeah, okay, that's a good one. I'll do that.
0: This is another one from Melissa. Asked, uh, "Why did you kill off the followers of the Light?" Thirty-seven years later, and I'm still not over it.
1: Who are the followers of the
0: Light? That was from Shogun Warriors, I believe. Was it really? I believe so.
1: I honestly can't answer this question because I have no idea who they are. Okay. I don't remember killing anybody off called the followers of the light i'm sorry
0: that's okay it is i'm not
1: saying i didn't do it i
0: just don't remember (laughs) it's okay um were you a fan of the planet of the apes films before you wrote the book
1: um yeah yeah uh the first two and then i never saw the last three I adapted them, but I used uh, screenplays. Hmm. And you got to remember, this was back when we were doing this, there was no home video. So if you hadn't seen the movie when it came out, or if it happened to be shown on television, you were stuck. And I, I warned them. I said, well, I've only seen the first two. Um, I heard the third one wasn't that good, so I just didn't bother going to see it. I liked the first two, but um, I'm at sea on the rest. And they said, well, we got the screenplays. And that's why people have complained that I changed, I don't know, the fourth movie, the third movie, one of them. And I didn't. I followed the screenplay they gave me. When they made the movie, they changed the screenplay. Um, And I didn't know, because I hadn't seen the movie, so it wasn't me. Anyway, uh, yeah, I liked the first two movies, and boy, did I like Mike Pluck's art. That was the real selling point there. But the other thing, uh, the Planet of the Apes was very much an a allegory on racial issues and that's something I could really sink my teeth into writing, you know um, I saw a chance to you know, make points without preaching um, maybe make people think a little bit and uh yeah, it, it it appealed to me a lot, and Mike Plug was just the absolute selling point.
0: Now, speaking of, uh, we're gun in that book, I guess um, were Gunpowder Julius and Steely Dan, the River Rats from Planet of the Apes. Were they based on Mike Plug and Gary Friedrich?
1: Almost the uh, the human guy is Mike Plug. And the other guy was based on nobody. I never met Gary Friedrich. Um, I guess he had moved to California just before I got to Marvel. He was still doing uh, some things for Marvel when I was there, but I never met him in person. So he was a good buddy with John Verporten. So I heard a lot about Gary Friedrich from John Verporten but never met him in person, still haven't met him in person, as far as I can remember. So Mike Plug is very much a larger-than-life guy with a big, booming laugh, you know. He's not tall, but he seems like a real big guy, you know. He walks in a room and fills it up, and and his, uh, the, the laugh is just infectious, and it's so big and hearty. It's, it's amazing. And uh, while he doesn't, slap people on the back hard enough to knock them in the water it seems like he would do that you know what I mean (laughs) Um, so yeah I forget which is which I guess Steely Dan was the human guy that's Mike Pluke and Gunpowder Julius was just a I think when I was a kid there were there was a Davy Crockett riverboat thing with Mike Fink or something and I just really loved that uh, over the top bragging thing and that's what those two guys were pretty much based on
0: what was it like collaborating with Mike Plug on those books
1: oh that's one of the best collaborations ever uh, I mean the real standouts for me are the stuff I did with Mike Plug, not just Planet of the Apes but the initial weird world stuff and then there's of course Paul Galace on Master of Kung Fu and Bill Savage on uh, Moon Knight Um, and, oh, there's a few others, but those, those three probably are the standouts.
0: Speaking of Paul Galassi, I was speaking with him recently and a question had come up about, um, who was approached first to work on James Bond and then who brought the other one onto the project and he couldn't quite remember who it was.
1: Yeah, I don't remember either. I, I think it was, um, Was it Michael Eury who now does Back Issue Magazine? Was he the editor of the James Bond thing we did?
0: Now I don't recall.
1: I don't know. I think we had done we had done Batman versus Predator two. Paul and I had done that for Dark Horse, and you know, of course, with DC's blessing, you know, it was a co-production but the actual production uh, of the book was done by the Dark Horse people. And then Dark Horse got the rights to James Bond, and I think based on what we'd done on Batman Predator, it made him come to us, I don't know. I, I think Paul was more known as being a James Bond fanatic than I was, Although we both were, uh, he's always been a bigger James Bond nut than me. But, you know, I read the Ian Fleming books and saw the movies and, and, you know, loved the character. Uh, But for him, it was a real, you know, whoa, doing James Bond is my dream kind of thing. And I I seem to remember getting a call from Paul, and the call was something like... uh, Did you get call, man? And I said, "What call? Uh, You know, uh, what's his name? Mike Richardson, the head of Dark Horse. Did Mike call you?" And I said, "No, but I just got in. I might have missed the call." And he says, "Well, it's happening, man. You know, what? We're doing Bond. We're doing Bond together. You know. (laughs) So I think uh, Paul knew before I did. At least that's how I remember this going down." But I don't know if uh, you know who they picked first. I think they picked us as a team, based on that Batman Predator.
0: Okay, you you've uh, been able to work on both uh, King Conan and King Cull. Which did yeah. you prefer, and why?
1: I like the Cull stuff, and uh, there's another great, great artist that I've worked with, man. Wow, that uh, that John Bolton stuff was really special. I thought. And um, I think I like Cull a little more, A, because John Bolton did it, and B, intrinsically, inherently, because Cull seemed to me a darker, more brooding character. And it was a way to distinguish, you could do that kind of, excuse me, that kind of material, sword and sorcery, barbarian, whatever, uh, without seeming, so much like Conan, hmm. and it it made me feel like, well, I'm I'm not in Roy Thomas's shadow so much doing King Cole, so uh, it, it it allowed for darker and freer stuff. When I was doing King Conan, uh, it felt like, well, you know, this is this is Roy's baby, and I got to stay true to that, and it just it was fun, I mean, I like doing it. I like doing long things, and King Conan and King Call, they both were long story uh projects um, I think
0: wasn't King Cone it was like an annual right? I think so, yeah, so anything
1: that gives you more pages i'm I'm all over it.
0: Now, what what end, ended up making you leave Marvel and go to D.C., and what was it like to kind of leave your quote-unquote kids behind, like your Shang-Chi and Moon yeah. Knight?
1: Yeah, I hated doing that. Uh, a, I liked uh, Master Kung Fu so much. B, I liked Moon Knight so much. C, there was talk of doing uh, Weird World, which I created as a regular thing. And I was enjoying, uh, I think I was doing King Conan at the time, and as I just said, I was enjoying that, doing the long stories. Well, what happened? I'll just tell the truth. uh, Even though uh, there are those, well, not those. There's at least one guy who still disputes it to this day, but he's a liar. Uh, This guy named Jim Shooter became editor-in-chief at Marvel. And my introduction to him was during a meeting with uh, all the writers who were within reach of New York City and Stan Lee, and there was this new guy sitting in the meeting. I'd never seen him before, had no idea who he was, and in the middle of the meeting, he leaned forward into the center, you know, and... Interrupted Stan Lee and said I'm taking this guy out now pointing to me and I didn't know what the hell was going on and nobody said anything and so he got up and said come on so I went with him and he was proofreading an issue of Godzilla and he wanted me to rewrite all of Dum Dugan's dialogue into proper English proper grammar he called it And and I just laughed and and I thought he was joking, you know? And he said, "Uh, this is not funny. You have to correct all this, Graham. You have to rewrite every balloon that Dum Dum Dugan has. And I said, are you crazy? I mean, Dum Dum, you know, we just left the room with Stan Lee and he created Dum Dum Dugan. This is the way Dum Dum Dugan talks. He's from Brooklyn or wherever, and he drops his G's and says "gonna" instead of "going to." I mean, that's the way he talks. You gotta write him like this, and he just insisted. You gotta rewrite it. I'm the, I'm the assistant editor, and I demand that you make these. I thought this guy is insane, and I finally exploded and started bellowing at him, yelling "fuck you!" I'm not rewriting that, and. If you want it rewritten, go tell Stan Lee's right in the other office you pulled me out of. So that was not a good start for me and Jim Shooter, and it only got worse from there. Hmm. And the reason I ultimately quit was something called the Jim Shooter uh, theory of the little bang of Marvel Comics as opposed to the Big Bang Theory. And I said, what the fuck are you guys talking about? This was this was the other editors, you know, Ralph Macchio and um, Mark Grunwald and people like that. Jim Salakrupper are calling me up and telling me about this. Yeah, he wants to kill off all the characters and replace them with, uh, you know, Jim Shooter-approved versions. I said, what, what are you talking, kill off the character?" Yeah, he he wants to kill off uh Captain America. I said, you can't kill off Captain America. What do you Stanley will never let this happen he talk No, no, no. You're not going to kill off Captain America. He just wants the writer to kill off Steve Rogers and have a new guy become Captain America like an investment banker. And I said, what? Are you, an investment banker. Wow. Talk about hideous stereotypes of America, investment banker. That's about the worst thing I can imagine. Yeah, and he's going to want Thor killed off. Not Thor, but Dr. Donald Blake. He wants him killed off, and then someone else finds the, the walking stick and taps it, and he becomes Thor. And I said, what the hell is the point of all this? Well, it's the Jim Shooter theory of the little bang of the Marvel universe. He wants to change it from the Stan Lee Marvel universe into the Jim Shooter Marvel universe. And I said, well, he's not doing that. I I don't care if he kills Peter Parker. He's still Spider-Man, it's still Stan Lee. And this, and what is the point? You know. Well, he wants to. He thinks it'll increase sales. And I said, Well, yeah, it would, but it's not worth it. It's a stupid, terrible thing to do. Anyway, so we fast forward, and then I start getting calls. Uh, oh, it looks like your books are going to be first on the list. And I go, What? And he goes, yeah, you're doing Thor, and he's going to tell you you have to kill Donald Blake and then he's gonna have you kill Shang-Chi and, you know. And I got the call from Shooter and he says, yeah, you have to kill, next issue, you have to kill off Shang-Chi and I wanna see his blood so he can never be brought back. I said, I got news for you. I don't care how much blood you show in comic books, they can always be brought back. He said, yeah, but you're going to kill him and show of blood and he'll never come back. And you're going to replace him with a new master of Kung Fu like a ninja. I said, yeah, yeah. ninjas are Japanese, Kung Fu is Chinese. They have nothing to do with each other other than both being martial arts type things. If you want, if you hate Master of Kung Fu, kill the book don't kill Shang-Chi, kill the book, and then start a new Master of Ninja number one, if that's what you want, but I don't wanna do it. I'd rather do Shang-Chi." He says, nope, you gotta kill him off, and you gotta gotta kill off Don Blake, and then pretty soon you're gonna have to kill off uh, Moon Knight, and, and this, that, and the other. I said, no, I'm not gonna do any of that. I'm never gonna do any of that. And a few months went by, and things seemed to have calmed down. And then I got a call again, and he says, it must be done next issue, and if you won't do it, I'll just get somebody who will. And I said, okay, and I hung up on him, and I picked up the phone and called Dick Giordano at DC, and I said, Dick, you know how you've been wanting to take me out to lunch, how about tomorrow? And Dick said, great, and that was that. Wow. I went out to lunch with Dick Giordano and he swept a hand across the wall with the latest covers of all the titles on it. And he says, what do you want? And I said, you're kidding. And he, they all have writers right now. He said, what do you want? Just a, we, let's talk about it. And I said, well, you know, Batman's always been my all time favorite character. You got it. I said, you're kidding me. Wait, uh, what about Jerry Conway? And, and he said, uh, Jerry's leaving the book. Don't worry about it. And it turns out Jerry stopped here a couple of years ago and we went out to dinner. And I found out that was not true. Jerry did not want to get off Batman and has been mad at me ever since. And you know, I, I, told, I said, well, they told me you were leaving the book, man, and I figured that. But anyway, that's how it happened.
0: Now, so you've probably written more Batman stories than just about anyone now. I guess. You, you've written a, a lot of Batman stories. So what, what makes the character work for you?
1: Well, Danny O'Neill had this great saying. I give him credit for this. He said, Superman is the only character who can destroy the universe by listening hard. <laughs> and Yes, while I have, uh, you know, that the, the fond spot in my heart like all comic book readers do for Superman because he was the first, uh, it, there's always been something about the character that I couldn't connect with, and that's he's too damn super. Uh, other than Kryptonite, he risks nothing when he goes out to do anything including moving planets, for God's sake, you know. He cannot be hurt. But Batman puts his life on the line every night he goes out and tries to help people, you know. Uh, and he's self-made. It's not a product of a yellow sun and lower gravity. It's it's him putting in hard work to become, you know, the best athlete and the toughest guy and so on and so forth. So. Everything about Batman appeals to my sense of, you know, trying to be the best and doing the best. And everything about Superman is just too damn easy. And boy, when they had me do World's Finest, what a chore that was trying to figure out month after month, and I only did it for, I think, five, six, seven months, something like that, some excuse for Batman, uh, for Superman needing Batman for anything that didn't portray Superman as being dumb. Mm. Well, I need Batman's brain to help me out on this, you know. And you, you were not allowed to show Superman being dumb. He had to be super smart as well as super everything else. So, boy, did you have to contrive these unlikely scenarios for these two to team up. And... I don't know. I I couldn't wait to get off World's Finest. Even though I like Superman and Batman, and you would think putting the two together, wow, what a treat. No, not so much. Not when you're writing it.
0: What was it like to write both Detective Comics and Batman at the same time? And did you approach them differently? Or how did you kind of address basically writing two Batman stories every month? Well,
1: that's that's what Dick said when he said, you got it. He said, but... We're, we're crossing the stories over from Batman into detective, so you gotta do Batman twice a month. You gotta do one every two weeks. And I thought, well, you know, I'm starting over. I'm need. I'm gonna need a whole new workload here. I guess I could do that. The other part of the deal, going to D.C., was uh, creating my own things, which eventually became, got derailed by Hollywood calling and me going out to Hollywood for extended period of time but eventually I did get to create the the new stuff uh, Electric Warrior Lords of the Ultra Realm Slash Maraud Xena Brood I think there was one or two others but anyway the Batman stuff was basically to allow me to make money while I'm coming up with these new things well Aztec Ace was going to be one of them too but Eclipse called and they ended up getting Aztec Ace. Anyway, uh, I kind of like continuing from Batman to Detective, back and forth. Uh, It it made it very different and uh, uh, somehow more immediate. I mean, with everything else I've done, I would sit down to do the next issue and say, Jesus, what the hell did I do last? Where did I leave off, you know? And I'd have to go look at the... With the Batman, it's like I didn't have a chance to forget, you know? It was just almost a constant thing. So I enjoyed that.
0: In and around the late 80s, to go back to Pat Broderick, you worked on the uh, the Cops uh, uh, animated Oh, oh uh, yeah. It was, it was a cartoon, and it was, I guess, the comic book of that, which I actually didn't even know had existed till maybe a year ago what was it like working on that product considering that you didn't really like necessarily working on licensed stuff where there might be issues were there issues Uh, with what was going on in the cartoon
1: no I didn't but that was a favor to a friend another one of my very (laughs) best friends became Andy Helfer at DC (laughs) I love Andy Helfer although I have had the biggest fights ever with any editor with Andy Helfer Uh, I still love him uh, as a human being. He's a great guy. What a schmoozer he is, you know. Uh, And we both love all the same things and uh, it's just a joy to hang out with him. He's such a a goofy, smart guy. Um, He asked me to do it and I said no. And then he asked me, come on, as a favor for me. And he twisted my arm and I said I'll tell you the best thing about that I think my son was about four or five years old at the time and Andy and I got to go on a road trip to Rhode Island to Hasbro I think it was or Mattel Hasbro and the Hasbro people showed us all around and gave us all the uh, uh, character designs for the toys and uh, then took us into a room with all these new toys I'm not sure they were even on the market yet and said take as many as you want so I got to load up a car with all of these cool toys the whole cop set every character and all the vehicles and whatnot and bring it home for my kid and boy was he overjoyed and his friends, my God, they uh, they were so envious, you know. That was great.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it was. It was, and I got to take other toys too. I I didn't take too many other things. I wasn't sure exactly what he would like. I think I took ants. I don't know if you remember ants. They oh, were yeah. kind of cool. yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, working on Cops turned out, again, it was Pat Broderick, who, who I had worked with before and, you know, always enjoyed working with. So that helped. And, uh, uh, you know, it was okay.
0: Now, um... The Hasbro
1: people promised uh, they wouldn't really interfere. Unless I did a terrible job. And that's one thing I've never been afraid of. Well of course if it's terrible you're gonna ask for changes, but I don't worry about it being terrible. <laughs> it's always gonna
0: be good, goddammit. <laughs> how did uh how did the Batman and Dracula books first come out and what was it like working with Kelly Jones?
1: Uh well okay. Uh so I'm I go over to DC, and Dick Fernandino says, What do you like? I said, Well, my favorite character's has always been Batman. You got it. So I end up doing Batman and Detective and World's Finest. World's Finest only briefly, but Batman and Detective for, I don't know, what was it, four or five years?
0: Something like that. And then Denny O'Neill
1: calls me. He's an editor at uh, Marvel. He was my editor on Master Kung Fu and Moon Knight when I quit and he knew exactly what was going on with this kill off all the characters stuff. Although, it's funny, these guys don't talk about this much. Uh, uh, you know, every time I say, well, the reason I quit is because Jim Shooter was crazy and he wanted to kill off all the characters. They all kind of avert their eyes and don't want to confirm it too much. Some of them have, but it's weird. I don't know what spell Jim Shooter put on them, but anyway, <laughs> Uh Denny O'Neill was well aware of what was going down and understood completely why I quit and called me up to wish me well and called me up later to say, well, we're canceling Moon Knight after three issues after you left because it's and generis. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? He said, well, nobody else can write it and we're just gonna cancel it. If you can't write it, nobody can. Now, later on, they changed their minds. But then he called again and said, we're canceling Master Kung Fu also, because nobody can write that either, including me. I tried it, nobody could do what you were doing. I thought, well, these are nice compliments, but I wish I didn't have to leave them, you know? And he said, no, no, I understand. And he would call periodically just to stay in touch. And then uh, four or five years later, I got the call from Denny, which was, well, you remember the problems you had with Jim Shooter? Yep, well, I've become his number one target in your absence. And I go, well, too bad for you. And he <laughs> says, yeah, it's getting unbearable here. And I said, well, why don't you come to DC? And he said, well, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, <clears throat> could you talk to uh, you know the people at DC and smooth the way? And I said, Denny, you worked here before. And he said, yeah, I know, but I'm gonna need health insurance and I have a, a preexisting condition and they may not want it. And I said, oh, come on, they'll take you. And he said, well, you know, just, just put in the word for me. And I said, okay, uh, I'll do it. So I talked to Dick Giordano and Paul Levitz and so on. And then I hear, yeah, Denny O'Neil's moving to DC and he's gonna be the new editor on the Bat Books. So I get a call from Denny, and he says, "Um, great news, Uh, we're gonna be working together again, and thanks for your help in easing the way to DC, and I can't wait to work with you again. And I said, okay. And then the next thing I know, I'm not writing the Bat Books anymore. And. Denny, of course, swears, "Well, it wasn't my decision." And Dick Giordano swears, "Well, it wasn't my decision." I was really happy with what you were doing. You increased the sales, and blah blah blah. So I have no idea how that happened, but it happened. So now other writers are brought in to do Batman, and I'm doing other stuff. I don't know Specter, whatever, and. Then, Denny O'Neill, a few years after the new writers on Batman are doing their thing, Denny O'Neill calls me and invites me to submit a proposal for a Batman graphic novel. And I'm kind of pissed at him, although not sure I should be pissed at him or someone else. You know, I don't know what went down. (laughs) And so I'm a little leery but he says, oh, come on, come on. And I go, oh, all right, if I think of something, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, I was, I think, working with uh, Malcolm Jones was the inker on something, or no, we've, we had been working together on a Moon Knight graphic novel by this point. Uh, Shooter was gone, I guess. And they asked me to do a Moon Knight graphic novel, which Malcolm Jones drew, it was beautiful, never got published uh, because of some some fight with, I don't know, between Malcolm and Marvel, whatever the hell happened, I don't know. But anyway, so Malcolm had called me one night and I mentioned this Batman thing, and he says, you gonna do it? And I said, well, I don't know, Have you?" you know, graphic novel, and he said, well, what, what would it be if you did it? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'd have to do something that was really radically different, because uh, I don't want to get involved in their continuity. And he said, well, what would be radically different? And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe put the, the two Batman together, you know, Batman and Malcolm just went Ooh. and then he said I got the perfect penciler I'm penciling this guy on Sandman his name is Kelly Jones uh, I'm going to call him right now and have him call you and so I you know, get a phone call from Kelly Jones and it's this guy I've never talked to before I saw the Sandman stuff uh, and he says is it true you're going to do Batman and Dragon I said I just thought of it you know 20 minutes ago when I was talking to Malcolm I have no idea I haven't even mentioned this to Denny O'Neill well if you do it you gotta you gotta let me pencil it and Malcolm ink it and that's how it happened wow so I turned in the proposal and Denny said yeah well, let's go and I mean he, he said it's gotta be in Elseworlds but let's go and then I got another I think about Six months later, this is after the whole thing has been written, uh, I get another call from Denny, and he says, you know, of all the bat things in production right now, Red Rain is far and away the best of all of them. And I want you to come to a bat meet. And I said, what the hell is a bat meet? You know, Well, it's like a corporate retreat, but we're comic book folks, so it won't be like a corporate thing at all but you'll love it because it's just like where your house is. And it, it actually, I'm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania in the woods and countryside, rolling hills, whatnot. And he was right, the the bat meat retreat turned out to be very near uh, Sleepy Hollow, New York, where the Headless Horseman was, you know. And it, it is very much like this area. But anyway, I get I go to this Batman. I figure he's gonna ask me to do another uh, uh, graphic novel, but he didn't. Instead, uh, by the end of the first session, it, it was like, uh, how about coming back on Batman?" And then I was left with, well what the hell was that all about? you know, why was I taken off in the first place I don't understand what went down and he kept saying it wasn't me it wasn't me I can't say who it was <laughs> so that's how all that
0: happened now you've, you've been incredibly generous with your time we're, almost, we're coming up in like an, almost an hour and fifty so I'll ask one last question holy smokes I know animals the animals I know at some point we'll have to have you back on at some uh, when, when we're able to arrange it sometime later in the year but because uh, there's obviously so much Batman we could talk about but I guess one question that I did want to ask was you know yep. how what was it like to being in kind of the room creating what would end up becoming nightfall and writing a bunch of those chapters and and breaking the Batman
1: well that was the uh, the first session of that Batman where I didn't even know what the hell I was doing there until near the end of the first day. Uh, Chuck Dixon had no idea why he was there. He had written the Robin miniseries. And, you know, I'll make a long story short, if Denny was thinking of a whole new creative team, except for Alan Grant, he would stay, but he would go on this new book called Shadow of the Bat, move from detective, and then he'd bring... Chuck Dixon on the Detective and me on to Batman. I don't know what happened with the writers he'd been using, but this this was the whole point of this Batman. And he spent uh, much of the, the meat talking about doing this uh, colossal multi-issue crossover stunt. Uh, it didn't have a name yet. It wasn't called Nightfall. But about... Uh, Batman being replaced by someone else and, you know, getting a slightly different costume and boy, the sales will go way up and all that. And I sat listening to all this and I finally interrupted him. I said, well, I, you know, that all sounds great, but I got to tell you, it's, it ain't going to happen. And he said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And I said, That's, it's almost identical to an idea that I tried to sell To Dick Giordano and Jeanette Kahn, twice when on my first run of Batman, there they we were getting these letters. The Punisher was hot at Marvel at the time, and the Punisher was this ruthless killing machine, you know. And we were getting these letters saying Batman should be like the Punisher, and. I went to Dick Giordano and Len Wein and Jeanette Kahn and said, let me do this, uh, you know, maybe six or eight issue thing where Bruce Wayne gets hurt and a new guy becomes Batman and we have a different costume and he's really ruthless. He's he's as bad as the Punisher, you know, and it'll boost the sales through the roof and The only reason I want to do it is to prove the readers wrong. They think they want Batman to be this ruthless, callous, killing guy, but they're wrong. And I'll prove it to them. They'll be begging for Bruce Wayne to come back by the time I'm done. And they both told me flat out, nobody but Bruce Wayne could be the Batman, end of story. And they just shot me down. And then he said, well, I don't know about any of that, but... Uh, there's a new sheriff in town and I have permission to do all of this and we're going to do it and I went really you got him to go along? I don't know why you're a better salesman than I was I mean I tried my, my hardest to get this through I think by this time maybe Dick Giordano was no longer in charge and maybe it was Paul Levitz or somebody I don't know but anyway uh, he he got the approval and it, it was very similar to what I wanted to do and I thought, okay, all right, I'll do I'm in. And it was, it was uh, frustrating, fun, um, exasperating, rewarding. It was everything you can think of. It was so hard to get everything to function smoothly and, um, you know, just reading everybody else's scripts uh, and, and trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, Chuck was supposed to do this and this issue, and he didn't, and now my issue that follows his, I gotta do what he was supposed to do plus what I'm supposed to do. God damn it, you know? <laughs> I get really pissed off. But it, it all worked out in the end, I guess. Uh, people seem to like it. I just got this huge, have you seen this thing? It's a thousand-page hardcover book that you can't even pick up.
0: Yeah, the new omnibus collections. I think there's Holy two. but Jesus! I think there's going to end up being three of them total.
1: Yeah, it says volume one on it. I can't believe it. <laughs> I, had, I had no idea we did that much. You know, uh, there. I. I think I was part of. I don't know, eight or ten of these bat meets. We kept having more and more of them because the <laughs> the original stunt ended up making so much money that, that they, there was incentive to keep it going and I really got tired of it after a while I gotta confess uh, you know when the stunt is the norm it's no longer special I mean we're just doing that's all we're doing now is this crazy you know uh, unusual stuff so the unusual is now the usual and I actually succeeded in getting my book separated from the others and that began in my run of uh, Batman with Kelly Jones, which I didn't really want to do because I had already sold DC on uh, a series called Haunted Gotham that Kelly was perfect for. Mm -hmm. I thought Kelly was perfect for Haunted Gotham and Red Rain, Bloodstorm, Crimson Mist, that kind of stuff, Dark Joker, but wasn't perfect for the monthly Batman Uh, I'd seen the letters. I mean, there were two things, you know, Kelly Jones is God and Kelly Jones sucks as, uh, you know, can't draw Batman, the, the real Batman to save his life. You know, the people who were, who got into the groove of Red Rain thought he was perfect. And that included me for that kind of Batman. For the regular Batman, I didn't think, it, it, it would work. It ended up, I, I enjoyed that run, especially since we got to separate from, you know, the prodigal legacy contagion, all that crap, and <laughs> do our own thing in and, and self-contained Batman issues. That was really nice, I thought.
0: Okay, well, again, thank so, you. Sh-
1: so was Nightfall, by the way. I just yeah. thought it was being pushed too long
0: yeah well and th- this is I-, I would love to revisit your, your Batman run in more detail uh, at a future date because I mean as we said you wrote a lot of Batman there's a lot to unpack there so uh, I'd love to chat with you again in the future but uh, for the moment thank you so much for spending two hours with sure. me today sure okay well before we sat down you said well maybe an hour and it's been about two yeah. now So,
1: well I didn't look at the clock
0: <laughs> thank goodness for not looking at the clock then.
1: Sorry, I'm so long-winded.
0: <laughs> Not at all. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on Comic Shenanigans today. And again, I all look right. forward to hopefully chatting with you again in the future. All right. Thank you so much, Doug.
1: See ya.